0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Did You Read with Tim Montgomery. Welcome to Did You
1: Read, the opinion podcast from the Times opinion team. My name is Tim Montgomery and this week I'm joined by Jenny Russell, Peter Brooks and Philip Collins.
2: Maria Miller has been misrepresented by the media. She isn't being fairly judged because she has three powerful constituencies prepared to think the worst of her. The press oppose her because she wants to regulate them, the public distrust her because they think all politicians are on the make, and the Labour Party are gunning for her because she's a Tory. Whatever her faults, her reputation is being unjustly blackened. The media is free, but it isn't always fair, and Miller is paying the price for that.
3: I feel instinctively against an across-the-board amnesty for murder in Northern Ireland, as proposed on our front page uh, this week by Peter Hayne, also Francie Molloy, MP for Mid-Ulster, again this week. Patrick Corrigan of Amnesty International puts it very well. It is regrettable that senior political figures continue to show such disregard for one of the abiding lessons of conflict resolution. One cannot build a stable peace on a rocky foundation of injustice.
4: The royal tour to New Zealand brings out the worst in the press. The virtues claimed by newspapers during the Leveson saga were fearless reporting and holding power to account. The very opposite is on display with the wretched, fawning, uncritical guff of all royal coverage.
1: Well, to the tower with Phil Collins at the end of this uh, podcast, Um, but we're going to begin with uh, Jenny Russell's topic on Maria Miller. Now, I should say we're recording this uh, podcast on Tuesday morning, so we're not quite sure whether Maria Miller will still be in her job by the time uh, you listen to this, but... Jenny, you think there is something of a witch hunt against the culture secretary. You feel that she's being unfairly attacked by lots of vested interests.
2: I think that's right. I think that almost everything that she's been publicly accused of is, in fact, when you look at it, not true. The public has now got the impression that she tried to fiddle £45,000 worth of expenses and tens of thousands of people have now signed petitions saying that she should go because they believe that's the case. In fact, if you bother to read the reports, which I have and almost nobody does, she could only be accused of having taken that money unjustly if you believe that she should have been repaid on her mortgage for only the original sum which she borrowed 10 years before she became an MP. She bought her house for something like two hundred and fifty thousand pounds, but it was a bedsit, um, a collection of bedsits. It was a mess, and over the next eight or nine years before she became an MP, she gradually borrowed more against the mortgage in order to convert the house into a single home. By the time she became an MP, her mortgage was over half a million pounds. And it was that was the sum on which she was claiming mortgage interest. That's a completely reasonable thing to do. And it was only because the parliamentary commissioner decided to apply some absolutely rigorous part of the rules that said you must only ever claim your original purchase price, that the sum has even entered the public domain. And that's just an example of one of the many ways in which, people now think that Maria Miller did something that she didn't. All that she has done wrong was that for one single year, during which interest rates were falling very fast, she overclaimed, and I believe her when she says it was accidentally, by less than 6,000 pounds, because she didn't realize how fast interest rates were dropping. Nobody could make a case that this was a woman who'd gone into politics in order to fleece the taxpayer. She left a well-paid job in advertising. The running costs of both her homes were way in excess of what she could claim and what she did claim in allowances. This was not somebody setting out, unlike some MPs, to defraud the public. And yet somehow that's the impression that's been created.
1: Okay, well, that's the case for the defence of um, Maria Miller. Um, Phil Collins, in Tuesday's edition of the newspaper, The Times calls on Maria Miller to resign. um, And they cite really three key reasons. She claimed many thousands of pounds in error. She failed properly to apologise to the House of Commons. And finally, she must go because she can no longer credibly do the job that she holds in the public eye. That's the Times'
4: view. Do you agree with that? Well, that's the, the strong case against. Um, I've got some sympathy with Jenny's position. I do think these things become a sort of a pack mentality when people decide to go for a scalp. But let's just look for a moment at what Maria Miller could be said to have done wrong, because you very eloquently put the case for her. It's Perfectly reasonable to say she was playing the system in the sense that her she was claiming for her Wimbledon home as a second home when clearly she was living there. She had her family there, her children go to school in that area. That was her first home. So that she was playing the system in a way that the expenses scandal was meant to stop. The second thing you can say that she has done is the apology... She gave was so perfunctory that she showed no understanding that there is a serious problem with public possession of politics. That might be unfair, but it's not good enough to simply scream it's unfair because it's nevertheless a political fact that people believe this of politicians and in displaying such a cavalier attitude towards the House of Commons. She exacerbated that.
1: The Speaker, John Becker did instruct her to be short in her message, but oh, she took did that he? a bit. I fat, didn't prompt, even
2: know that. That she was. Al- bit literally.
4: However, she was also criticised by the inquiry for her obstructive attitude throughout the deployment of lawyers and the way she mm. refused to cooperate, which was really stupid of her. And then there's a third thing, which is when these stories gain a momentum, that at a certain point people think we've well, become such a political liability that we have to lose you anyway. Yes. Now I know that's a self fulfilling prophecy and I know if you're on the receiving end of that you might think it's unfair but again this is often what happens in these stories that they just keep going to the point where we think well it's not worth it
1: and you must imagine David Cameron probably on his knees at night praying for the black box to be discovered in the um, (laughs) ocean or something something to stop this story running on that issue of Maria Miller being a weight around David Cameron's shoulders, your cartoon in um, Saturday's Times, Peter, which we will link to f- um, at thetimes.co.uk slash comment central for Times subscribers. You, it was Grand National Day and you had uh, David Cameron as the jockey with Maria Miller as the horse on his shoulders. And I think that's your view, isn't it, as well? You think that she has become a big problem for a government that promised to clean up Parliament. Well, she certainly
3: has now, yes. I mean, strangely enough, on Thursday, when I was working out what to do my cartoon on, the day before the cartoon you mentioned, I had a word with Phil, and we were just talking about... I said to Phil... There isn't a great deal in this, is there, the <laughs> Maria Miller? Uh, uh, so, well, I didn't think there was. And no, no, I, I agreed. In, in, be... the, in the same
4: way that Jen, Jenny... Just in case uh, you were uh, about was... to be fair to me and not mention the fact that yes. I agreed with you. Yeah, you you <laughs> did. I did agree with you. No, you you did. Did. well, the yeah.
2: evidence against her wasn't great. No, but exactly. the constituencies ranged against her were always going to be yeah. great.
3: Yeah. yeah, but what has emerged since is what Phil has already outlined. and um, um, And I'll take it a little bit further. And that is that the 32-second apology was not... You know adequate to say the least and also all the um, evidence if it is such that's come out about her obstructing um, the inquiries uh, in, in, into so-called misdemeanors um, she um, obviously went down that route and tried to stop anything happening mm-hmm. but that aside I also think surely a cabinet mis- minister must be aware of how the public go for this. And if they've got any sense, A, of self-preservation, and B, of, if you like, political decency, they actually don't treat people high-handedly in the way that she did, has done since. And that's my argument against her. And I think that's why she has become a burden uh, uh, for Cameron. But also, he hasn't helped the process by, you know, again treating uh, the public as
1: idiots in a way. Okay. Jenny Russell.
2: The whole point about which home was her second home is in fact a complete red herring, because as the report says, the running costs of both homes were the same. She could have claimed the identical sum on both, and in both cases, it was less than it was actually costing her to run the houses. It's one of the many examples of something that has become a cause of outrage, and in fact, shouldn't matter at all and yet the public has got the impression that she was unfairly claiming to have on their second home MPs have to have two houses that's often the case I completely agree that she has now become a liability but I think she was probably caught in a situation of difficulty and I have to say here by the way that I have no sympathy for her politics or for her strategy on the press or for her as a person I'm just talking about what happens to somebody caught up in this kind of media storm which is that if she had gone to the house and apologised with great contrition The press and the public might equally well have taken that as a sign of tremendous guilt. Hmm. I think she was trying to make light of it and move on. And I also have some sympathy with her for trying to be legalistic about the inquiry. I think that the attitude that the investigator took was um, unnecessarily vigilant. And I think if I were Maria Miller, perhaps I too would have tried to keep saying, but why are you asking about this? It's not relevant. Or why do you want documents from 12 years ago? I don't have them anymore. Do you have your mortgage interest documents from a dozen years ago? I certainly don't.
4: Hmm. Jenny, what do you make of the allegation that her special advisor had made a some sort of veiled threat to the daily telegraph along the lines of we're in charge of the leveson process so you'd better be careful
2: well i think that was stupid but if you actually read the transcript what the special advisor was saying was you shouldn't have been doorstepping Maria miller's father who's 75 confused and had just come out of hospital and i think that the What she was saying referred to that. She was saying that the Leveson inquiry is going to be looking at the way that newspapers behave. And that is one of the elements that it would be looking at. In other words, this is the kind of behavior that newspapers have always indulged in, which is the bullying of an old man and which you shouldn't be doing. And now that's been misrepresented, I believe, as a threat generally, and you shouldn't inquire into this matter at all.
1: Putting aside the fact that um, UKIP's uh, former MEPs have run into many difficulties over the years, uh, Phil Collins, if uh, Nigel Farage wanted a story to be exploding all over the front pages in the run up to the European elections, this is the kind of story he would want, really, isn't it? It's another story of the so called political establishment in the eyes of 80% of voters
4: behaving badly. Well, it is, but I mean, I, I think if you asked the public of any politician, whether they've done anything or not, whether they, you'd like them to resign, then most of them would say yes. Mm. So that 80% number, I don't really regard as a particularly uh, important one. But but the, your, your main point is right, that of course it does feed that idea. And this is where we always end up with these stories, where the, the Prime Minister now will have to make a judgment about the political impact, which is quite divorced from the rights and wrongs of the actual and case.
2: That's my point. It's all divorced from the rights and wrongs well, well, of the actual right. case. I mean, if we were actually looking at this and saying, this is what Maria Miller has done, she overclaimed by. £6,000, she wasn't contrite um, she's got a special advisor without any um, sense of how they should be behaving and she hasn't formed political alliances should she go? Perhaps the answer is yes but that's not what she's being judged on No
4: right. that's right and this is, all, this is always what happens if you think there's so many examples of this I mean Peter Mandelson's second resignation is the obvious one where subsequently it turns out well he hasn't really done anything but at the yeah, time too late. The thought, appearances. well it looks yeah. awful and it's all going very badly so let's wipe the slate clean and, and, um, and yet there's also the sense that you have, as uh, David Cameron will have, which is I don't want to lose her for this reason. I don't want the press to be able to claim a scalp. Yeah. So we're in the standoff now.
1: But uh, David Cameron's been in this position before. Final word to you, Jenny Russell, hasn't he? He's had to he, defend Jeremy Hunt, whose resignation at the time was thought to be inevitable because of press pressure. And by and actually times, I believe. And he survived that, I and think of course, che- turning out to be... Um, in some people's view, quite a successful health secretary. I think Jeremy
2: Hunt is the only person of whom that's true, isn't it? All the rest have had to go. And I have to say one of the really marked things about Miller is that there doesn't seem to be any support for her within the party, either because people don't want to go public for fear that the press is going to gun for them, and also, I think, because she just hasn't made friends. And that's a fatal thing in politics if you get into trouble. If you haven't got allies who want to come out there and argue for you, you've had it.
1: Okay. Well, thank you for that. And we move on now to our second topic, which is uh, proposed by uh, you, Peter Brooks. And we led in Monday's paper on a story about forgiving the past terror acts of IRA um, alleged terrorists. And um, you worry about the message that this sends out. Yes. I think uh, basically uh, the moral
3: case has been kicked out by the pragmatic one. And it just seems to me cut and dried that accusations of murder should be pursued uh, and not let drop. And uh, I always feel and I always come back to the case uh, of Warrington, uh, 1993, uh, and the deaths of Tim Perry and uh, Jonathan Ball. And I cannot get over the fact that...
2: Ready to pop the question.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
3: In this particular instance, the killers of those two boys, innocent people who were killed um, by a bomb being left in a rubbish bin, a metal rubbish bin, uh, the most callous of crimes, uh, the most awful of deaths, that they should be, in a sense, forgiven. Um, A sort of hero for me in many ways is Tim Perry's father, uh, Colin Perry, who's managed, uh, with his wife, managed to deal with uh, the grieving process and take it forward by, uh, you know, uh, meeting the uh, heads of uh, the IRA and uh, Martin McGuinness and Gerry Adams because they asked to meet him. And he didn't feel it was right not to. And um, I just feel that. The idea by Peter Hayne for um, having a blanket amnesty is so that we should look forward and not keep looking back and looking. and politicians should, shouldn't have to look over their shoulders. But frankly, you can only look forward if you resolve what went wrong in the past. And this is one way of absolutely not doing that.
1: And what, and what is your view? Do you think people should have the day in court so that people are prosecuted and then potentially... In accordance with the Good Friday Agreement, they don't go to jail. Are you wanting the jail sentences sort of forgiven, but you still need that day in court? Or are you saying you want these people to go to jail as well? Well, I do actually, <laughs> but uh, in the terms of the
3: Good Friday Agreement uh, probably,
1: um, you know, stymie that. Um, um, Jenny Russell, in um, Tuesday's edition of the paper, Ross Clark wrote about this whole proposal. Britain would be in the odd position of prosecuting 50-year-old cases of suspected groping, even the adult-on-adult variety, while turning a blind eye to 20-year-old murders. Do you see a topsy-turvy system of justice emerging in Britain?
2: I think it is peculiar, actually, particularly given what we've just been discussing. We've got to hound somebody out of politics for accidentally overclaiming a few thousand pounds on a mortgage, but we're definitely going to forgive and praise and give jobs to people who carried out murders in the past. That seems like a really odd set of um, public morals. And I also think um, this is. I, I don't think that this strategy works, and I think it's partly because I'm South African and so I followed. Um, in great detail the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and I know lots of people who um Had family and friends who were killed in the struggle for South Africa. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which forgave past crimes, did at least demand that people stand up and say what they had done. And the idea behind that was that there were so many unsolved horrors in South Africa that for victims to be able to say, This is what happened to my child, and then for the perpetrator to stand up and say, This is how and why we killed them, was some kind of closure. And yet, for As many people who found that that offered some kind of catharsis, there are other people who are left very angry and outraged by that process. So I don't think you can say that um, simply forgiving the past is going to actually make any difference to how people feel. I don't think it's the right way to go about this. I can't see that it offers any kind of solution.
1: Um, Phil Collins, you were nodding vigorously when Jenny was saying um, that in the South African process, at least, there was confession of, of sin, of, of crime.
4: Well, I think as a minimal requirement, that's really very important. I, I, I agree, it doesn't expiate all the sin or, and get rid of all the pain. But it seemed, if we're going to have any kind of amnesty, it seems to me there has to be some sort of quid pro quo in the form of truth and reconciliation, some kind of public confession and conversation about apology, it. Apology, if you like. An apology, yeah, because one of those a rare public apology by the people who have actually done the thing mm. uh, for the thing that they have done. But let me just challenge Peter on the big question because there is a moral argument for this. It's not just a, an amoral or, or pragmatic argument. Pragmatism is a form of moralism. And the moral argument runs like this, which is that the, it's, we judge this event by its consequences and that though we know we're committing in a sense an immoral act by allowing people to, to go free for crimes we, we suspect they have committed, that nonetheless the, the consequences of doing so for a peaceful future are worth it. That's the moral bargain you make. It's not an amoral argument. It's an argument about. The, it's a consequentialist argument.
3: But who, who, are we, who, are we, not you, but who are we, to, to, to say that um, the victims' families feel that they don't?
4: No, true. We we are the. Arbiters who are making a moral judgment, which is easy to do. It's it's well It's very difficult to do. I know it's possible to do but it's not easy But it's a moral trade-off and I'm not Mm. I'm saying it like this in order to precisely not to diminish how difficult it is Mm. But nevertheless that's what happens in lots of conflicts where people the authorities decide we are going to lay aside the crimes of the past Appalling as they were in order that we can have a better future because without doing that We can't have it. Now, if you come to that conclusion, there's a case for doing that. And that seems to be the moral dilemma issue here Mm. is are the crimes sufficiently appalling that we have to go back and deal with them no matter what the consequence? Another way of putting it is that is judicial process something we can reasonably lay aside in order to get a better future? I'm 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 not asking that in order to imply the answer yes. I think I come down on your side in the end but I can see that there's a case for that. I think murder is sufficiently appalling. But if we hadn't made any bargains along those lines uh, throughout the whole process of peace in Ireland, we probably wouldn't be where we are today, would we? What do you
1: say about the accusation, um, Phil, and then we must move on to our final topic that has been made, uh, certainly by unionists, including uh, David Trimble, Lord Trimble, who was, of course, one of the co-architects of the Good Friday Agreement, that somehow the forgiveness has been unequal. We saw recently with the Hyde Park, bomber not being prosecuted under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement that somehow Sinn Féin and the authorities have done a secret deal where the so-called on-the-runs haven't faced at least the kind of justice that Peter Brooks wants them to face that there isn't the day in court which then would have resulted in them still going free but being found guilty or, or not guilty. Do you worry that there is, that there has been some undermining of the Good Friday Agreement's
4: principles? I, I do worry about that yes, um, for precisely the reasons we We've just been saying that some kind of public moment seems to be a minimal requirement in in this. I
2: agree completely. I think if you're going to go down this road at all, then you have got to say, at least tell us what happened and let the victims say what it felt like for them and to hear from the perpetrators. Don't just say, well, whatever happened in the past, we're forgetting it.
1: Mm. Well, we have to move now from uh, that grave uh, subject to something, I think, slightly lighter. And um, um, on, <laughs> on Monday's we'll uh, front that. page of the <laughs> London Evening Standard um, was a beautiful picture of um, the heir to the throne, Prince George, on his uh, <laughs> Here we trip go. to New He's Zealand. And trip. all Where's of our, all of our hearts were warmed by that picture. Except Phil Collins, your heart and you're called Philip, you're named after the Duke of Edinburgh and still you um, you still aren't appreciating the royal
4: tour. Because you know that's actually true. (laughs) Is
1: it
2: really? It's
4: actually true, I am in fact named after the Duke (laughs) of Edinburgh. Maybe maybe this explains my animus.
2: Did you become a monarchist very young?
4: (laughs) I've never been a a republican. (laughs) I I did, instantly (laughs) upon birth. My sister's called Elizabeth as well. Is she really Yes she really is. Well my sister's called Elizabeth
1: Elizabeth, uh, partly because of the Queen. Oh, as well, isn't, so. isn't
4: this lovely? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we have a child and call it
1: George? So, so come on, tell (laughs) us your your objection. Why lots of people? The Royal Family is one of the most popular institutions in the country. I think it's more popular than the National Health Service, more popular than the BBC. Why do you so resent a bit of good news, some nice photographs
4: on the front page of our newspapers? Oh, dear, Tim. You'll be putting cats on the front page next. (laughs)
1: Kangaroos is the latest thing. If your
4: hair were long enough to have a forelock, you'd have been tugging it throughout (laughs) your introduction. Look, my, my point isn't, I'm not making a point against the royal family. I can come on to that later if you want, but that's not my central point. It's about the way we cover them. And it's about the fact that our critical faculties are simply abandoned as soon as we have anything to do with the royal family. It is purely unadorned nonsense that we pump out. They are wandering around another country doing nothing in particular and doing it very well and we treat it as though this is a major event. Every so often the royal family is connected to a major event. The state visit, um, the island visit, is a is an, an event with significance mm. and I wouldn't dream of saying we don't you know, publicise that. But the rest of what they do, it's just some chinless characters wandering around doing nothing. And the way we treat this, young couple have baby and yet we think it's some major event. It's just dreary. But the, the, the coverage
1: in New Zealand, the coverage in Australia, the coverage in Canada, wherever they go, they get masses of publicity. It's not just a British press and surely this is publicity that's good for Britain.
4: You, you're simply saying it, it, is the, it is a fact, therefore it's right. I'm telling you it's boring. It's un, un, unimportant you're saying it's good for
2: Britain.
4: Um, it's good for Britain. What, to, to project an image of a of an aristocratic hereditary monarchy yes it, you think that's, <laughs> that's good
2: <laughs> well, je- je- Jenny,
0: di- Jenny do you share any of
1: Phil's <laughs> worry that um, this publicity is, is fawning
2: I suppose it is weird that the press that at one moment has its claws out for anybody who they've decided they want to tear down, like Maria Miller, and is absolutely unrelenting in its unpleasantness, suddenly turns round and is indeed crawling along the the, the ground, tugging its forelock in response to the royal family. But um, I'm so uninterested in this stuff that I don't even read it. This is a I, just, I I Everybody I just, always says they're I, I not look, interested.
4: In no, which case, let's not do it then. No,
2: no, no, no hang no. on, I've got a different point. I like looking at the pictures. As far as I'm concerned, they're fashion spreads, and I like looking at
4: babies. Anyone's baby. Oh, but it's not anyone's baby, is it? Well, let's have a democratic baby page then. Let's have loads of people's you should, you babies. Should go, you should go and work for the Independent, Phil Collins. Um,
1: I Peter will be doing <laughs> after this. Peter Brooks. Well, it sells newspapers. It
2: yes, people like looking field. at pretty pictures.
3: Uh, we're here because of <laughs> things oh, like who's
4: that. Who's the pragmatist now, Peter? <laughs> <laughs> where's your moral <laughs> high, <particularly> high ground? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my moral high ground is, is <laughs> quite <have> intact. Pictures, <laughs> pictures <laughs> of the high executioner on the front page of the newspapers. Be, no, 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 I'm, I'm, no, you,
1: you be. You be, you, you be quiet, Phil, oh, for a moment, or well, it's the, the, the Tower of London for you. Peter Brooks is speaking.
3: big. They're terribly useful in many ways. I couldn't have done my cartoon on Maria Miller this morning without. Bringing in the, um, the tour to New Zealand. But, um, no, that aside, I mean, I, I, I just feel that, uh, well, I can remember when Kate and, uh, or oh, if I can call her that, William got married, uh, or got engaged, I think it was. T2 were doing a special, and I was doing the cover, and I did uh, Monk's Scream, because I was so fed up of all the, <laughs> all the coverage. <laughs> and there they were in the background, the two figures on the bridge, and uh, the, there was this Monk scream, uh, and I felt kind of bad afterwards. Only because uh, these, hero, were two, these were two people getting <laughs> married, you know. Why on earth
4: was I pouring cold water on no, that? Why on earth were you drawing a cartoon about it? Is the question. Well,
3: because I felt I felt absolutely pissed off with the whole thing, frankly. That's why I was doing it.
1: Well, I have to get the bleeper button now. now <laughs> feel, okay, fine, uh, Peter. Um, Jenny Russell.
2: Um, I was a Republican all my life. I was threatened with expulsion from school for refusing to stand up publicly on the stage of the choir during prize-giving during um, God Save the Queen. And in later life, I've completely changed my mind. I think that um, they are a fairly harmless representation of a Only family that harmless. makes people feel better about themselves and in a way I think that so much of modern media is so unpleasant that perhaps it's a good thing that we have a refuge which is cats, small babies and the royal family where people aren't being
4: nasty.
1: But final word to um, Phil Collins we then we always must wrap end up. end up
4: with this paradoxical argument about the monarchy which is on the one hand it really doesn't matter, it's harmless, it has no significance, why are you so worried about it? and on the other hand it's still nevertheless incredibly important
1: I love the way you get so wound up by this topic. I think you get more wound up about this topic in editorial conferences than any others but that I'm afraid is all we have time for today thank you Phil Collins Jenny Russell and Peter Brooks and also our producer Dave McGuire. Some of the articles that we've been discussing today and the cartoons from Peter Brooks that uh, he has mentioned can be accessed by Times subscribers by going to thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. I'm Gabriel Marconi, the host of the game podcast from The Times, where we talk football every single Monday. We'll be reviewing the action from the weekend and debating on all the issues of the week. Head to the times.co.uk for more details and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.